The ULMA and John Baugh Foundation recognizes the God-given dignity of every person and supports nonprofit organizations, including Good Faith Media, that reflect the love of Christ. Among the Baugh Foundation's values are compassion, inclusivity, and church-state separation. The Baugh Foundation is pleased to support Good Faith Media and this podcast on the life and work of Molly T. Marshall. For generations to come, Baptists will have Molly Marshall to thank for any woman who preaches, teaches, or leads our churches or schools. I'm George Mason, host of The Good God Project, conversations that matter about faith and public life. You can find our weekly video podcasts on Good Faith Media or at goodgodproject.com. Thanks for tuning in to Brother Molly. Please stay tuned after the credits for an important epilogue to Brother Molly. And now, our sixth and final episode. Well-behaved women rarely make history. Amber Simpson, one of Molly's students at Central. That is a great quote for Molly T. Marshall. Welcome back to Brother Molly, a six-episode documentary podcast from Good Faith Media on the life and work of theologian Molly T. Marshall. I'm Erica Whitaker. Episode 6, The Slow Way Across the Earth. It's 2004, and Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City is in dire straits. Its downtown campus is crumbling, and the interim leadership is trying to hold the institution together. It's been Molly's home for nearly a decade. She's been professor of theology and spiritual formation, and just recently named acting academic dean. Now, a presidential search is underway. Helen Moore Montgomery, a longtime friend of Molly's, who was on Central's Board of Trustees at the time, I was blessed to be with the search committee that um, was appointed, and we talked to a lot of candidates. But in my heart, I thought, you know, the leader is right here on the campus already. And uh, the school was responding to Molly already. You could see there was growth and there was interest in the school with Molly there. And um, she worked hard. She was so prepared. So I asked permission to give her name to the search committee. Would she be willing and interested in serving? And she prayed about it, and she and Douglas talked about it. And um, she came to me and she said, I've really thought about it seriously, and I think I'm ready. And so I gave her name. One of the questions that I ask an executive consultant before entering fully the process of the presidential search. I said, what do you see are my liabilities in going into this? And he told me three things. You often uh, use your wit at the expense of others, acerbic wit. You 
use ivory tower language, and you come across professorial. And I owned all of that reality. Uh, I do have a, a sharp tongue at times, and I can see the buffoonery in others and love to puncture pomposity. I do need to speak clearly out of theological conviction, which I have deeply, but I am professorial. I'm pedantic and measured and want precision in language. Maybe it is a form of intellectual arrogance, but certain subjects need certain words. Anyway, I took his feedback and I thought, you know, I can work on all of those things. And uh, there was conversation about other candidates and everything. And I finally said, are you listening? Are you listening to what I'm saying? We have the candidate here on campus. We're struggling financially. We're struggling for leadership. We have someone that knows our story right here and is ready to go out and tell it. I think Molly is called to this place. She has all the scars and she wears them well. And another professor who was on the search committee representing the faculty spoke up and said, I agree with Helen. So more than 30 years after Helen first lays eyes on a young Molly at Oklahoma Baptist University, the future that Helen envisioned then is happening now. Molly T. Marshall levels up again, this time to the presidency of a Baptist seminary. Molly T. Marshall takes office in January 2005. Her husband Douglas, though increasingly ill, is proud to be at her installation service. Another celebration comes in the way of a check from a Baptist businessman in Texas named John Baugh. Baugh, founder of the food supply corporation Cisco, appreciates Molly's strong and sometimes dissenting voice among Baptists. The gift, early in her presidential tenure, is a welcome encouragement in the face of hardship. Robin Sanbothy, who has worked with Molly at Central for more than 20 years. When Molly started as the president, we were within, I think, like 10 days of closing if, if we had to rely on what money we had in the bank. There was great fragility. Nobody really knew the full depths of the fragility yet until we did a very, very uh, close to forensic audit in the spring of 2005. But I knew that the fall, uh, before I was elected, that the cash flow had uh, dwindled and the reserve ratio was alarmingly weak. At one point, about two weeks of cash flow remaining and liquidating, burning assets, liquidating endowment prior to my starting. And she had to make some really, really hard decisions when she started 
about um, paring down the overhead. You know, the the staff um, thinking, rethinking how to do theological education. That was a, a viable way to do theological education. She had to be willing to listen to advice about that. So basically, when the institution had declined almost irreparably, uh, the board elected her through the keys. This is George Townsend, Central's executive vice president that Molly hires immediately in 2005. At that time, interestingly, uh, two-thirds of the board had responded to a questionnaire from Intrust and indicated that the institution didn't have a prayer, really. They didn't think it could survive. So they tossed her the keys and kind of said, well, you know, we're, we're with you, we're praying for you. However, <laughs> we really, in our heart of hearts, you know, kind of betting otherwise. And about two months after that, I got a call from Molly um, seeking my help in a rebuilding effort here. Susan Shaw, professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Oregon State University. Uh, the glass cliff is a phenomenon that occurs when you have an entity, an institution that's about to go under. So a business that's failing, a church that's failing, a seminary that's failing. And at that point, the institution will finally hire a woman to run it. And you see this quite often. And so what often happens is just as it's about to fail, they hire a woman, and then if it does fail, they can blame her for it. And I think part of this happens, the research suggests, because, of course, women are perceived as, you know, more nurturing, more caring, more able to pick up everybody else's messes and fix it. And so it puts women in this really precarious position. Most people are doing it unconsciously. I don't think anybody's saying, oh, this is precarious, let's put a woman there, and that way if she fails, we don't have to worry about it. I think it's much more subtle than that. I think it is because we believe these things about women, and and I think most of the time the people making those decisions are men, and so I think they're also subconsciously protecting men by putting women in these precarious positions. So that they don't want to invite the good old boys in when they think they might fail. And so that's an opportune time to, to invite a woman and to let her clean up the mess. But again, I think that is so deeply ingrained into how we experience gender that I don't think people are thinking it consciously at all. I think it just happens that way. And that's why I think encouraging people to have this gender lens is so important so they stop doing that stuff and they start asking, how is gender working here? Why is it that only at this point are we asking women, and often people of color as well, to, to step in and take these roles? Any discussion of Molly, Central, and the Glass Cliff is complex. After all, it was Helen Moore Montgomery, one of Molly's biggest cheerleaders, who put Molly's name forward in complete confidence in Molly's ability. Nevertheless, the phenomenon is real, as are Central's problems when Molly ascends to the presidency. To learn how in extremis we actually were was critical, and then to take very uh, radical but prudent steps in terms of declaring financial exigency 
and then the horrible kind of uh, measure of releasing a third of the faculty and half of the staff, which we did in June of 2005. And my sense of it was that if we could basically co-opt Molly's brand and somehow operationalize that in a new vibrant mission, uh, reorient ourselves in some new digs, you know, get out of the very depressed uh, physical environment that the, that the uh, organization was uh, enduring at that time. Uh, at that time, the, or, uh, the administration building had been condemned. <laughs> Hard to hold chapel when, you know, so we're in the basement of the library holding chapel. Uh, I mean, it was just a very, very depressed situation, and literally everywhere you turned, the organization cried out for a renewal. So some very tough decisions were made. Mark Medley, one of Molly's students from Southern who became a lifelong friend. I knew Molly would succeed because Molly would study and study and study and learn the craft of what it is to be a president of a theological institution. I just knew that. I knew she would give her her whole self to to the job, to the institution. It's quite a work ethic. Uh, I think the first week, uh, I would show up relatively early, 8 o'clock, and, and every time I would drive up in the parking lot, there's Molly's car. Uh-oh, boss is here early. Perhaps I should come a little earlier. Um, 7.30, I drive up. Molly's car is in the parking lot. Try it again, 7 o'clock. Molly's car is in the parking lot. And really, at the end of the first week, she may not remember this, but I walked into her office and I said, you win. I'm going to do the best that I can for this organization. However, uh, trying to compete with your time on the job is going to run me in the ground. So you win. And we had a chuckle about that and, and moved on. So uh, the work ethic has been incredible. Uh, She's devoted her life to this. In August 2006, Molly and her leadership team take another significant step for Central. They move the seminary out of downtown Kansas City and into the suburbs to Shawnee, Kansas, and the site of what had been a large church campus. And this was a, a, formerly a church. It was kind of a beige box, and we were able to buy it at a good rate Uh, We didn't have a library. We didn't have a chapel. We just kind of made do here. As Molly settles into the presidency, her concerns are not only numbers and logistics. They also have to do with spiritual leadership. She turns to Abbot Gregory of Conception for counsel. Abbot Gregory, what did you pray for as you began your service as the spiritual head of your community which also has CEO functions. He said, I prayed for three things. I prayed for wisdom and compassion and patience. Wisdom, because nobody is equal to this kind of job. Compassion, because I would be working with frail persons like me. And patience, because I would be working (laughs) with frail persons like me. And so that has been, for me, the three legs of my prayer stool. 
And of course, Molly sets out in earnest to do the never-ending work of any zealous president in higher education. Raise money. She is very, very articulate across an array of possible encounters with people. You know, some folks are articulate in their discipline or their profession, and they've got the vocab down and whatever they're about at that particular point. But she can, you know, compel uh, a vernacular, and it's a meaningful one across really a spectrum of needs institutionally, whether that be delivering a chapel address or a major address in a foreign land uh, or relating to um, a farmer in Kansas or a small church setting, uh, just whatever the venue. Babs Baugh, a friend to Molly, a donor to Central, the daughter of businessman John Baugh. I know who introduced us, my father introduces. He told me that he had met a woman who was just a great Baptist and a great woman, and, and that was certainly true. Here's Donna Carrier, Molly's executive assistant, driving into campus. I have never known anyone, and I've known a lot of hardworking people, but I've never known anyone that works as hard as she does, that is as dedicated to her to her job, to theological studies. She comes in so early, long before me, I don't even try to beat her in, and stays longer than most, and absolutely never complains about it. Just doesn't, she just loves it. Molly proves successful as a fundraiser, even as she cares for Douglas and his failing health. When my husband was so ill, uh, Abbot Gregory said, no, just send a little note. We'll put it on the wall so that when people are in private prayer, they can remember you and Douglas. Just let us enter into this with you in prayer. I would leave early for school. I would get home. Uh, at, a, at an optimal time, about 4.30, when uh, his pain medications and all would mean that he could, and his breathing treatments would mean that he could sit and have a little bit of conversation. His line was always, tell me something good about the seminary. In 2009, Molly tells Douglas something good about the seminary, namely a $2 million gift from the Baugh Foundation to help construct a new chapel for Central. The seminary breaks ground for the holy space before May 23, 2010, the last day of Douglas Green's life on earth. He looked at me that morning. Uh, he asked the nurse for a catheter. And he said, I'm not recoverable. His clinical assessment of where he was. And so basically I spent the day uh, just sitting, holding his hand, having the gentlest of conversations about how God makes space in God's own eternity for us, even though we don't know the mystery of the passage 
Douglas dies in the evening. It's Pentecost, a Christian holy day marking the gift of the Holy Spirit to Jesus' disciples, the death of a beloved husband, and the birthday of the church. The process of him dying and then actually accompanying his body to the point of cremation and bringing his body in that form to the to the church among those gathered for the funeral brother Cyprian representing the benedictines lighting the ignition myself in the crematorium accompanied by my younger brother and my pastor uh, was an indication I had accompanied him as far. And it's a radical act of faith to entrust your beloved to the care of God. That's when it gets really real, is you profess belief in resurrection and the life everlasting all your days, and then at that threshold, you say into your hands, O God, I have accompanied as far as I could. And then I, uh... And then Molly does something that most Baptists wouldn't dare talk about openly, but should. I prayed with some of the saints, not to them, with them. I prayed uh, Dale Moody, Eric Rust, some of my old professors were already on the other side. Dear friends who had explored Earth's foundations and life's meanings with Douglas and Molly. And I said, Douglas is going to be very weary. Make your way to him in welcome. Uh, help him. There's a wonderful uh, ending song uh, from St. Matthew's Passion by Bach. And it's when Jesus is placed into the tomb and uh, the women cry to Jesus in the tomb, rest softly, softly rest, dear exhausted limbs. And I was kind of acting in that in my intercession with some whom I knew he loved and respected, uh, who knows the mystery of all of that, but entrusting to God's safekeeping and joined uh, with the saints of the ages. Absent from the body, I trust him to be present with the Lord. Molly had thought she and Douglas could wrestle something good from pain and heartbreak. They did. Now, the wrestle is gone. Only the good remains.
Brother Molly returns after the break. You're listening to Brother Molly, Season 1 of Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. Learn more about Molly T. Marshall and this podcast at BrotherMolly.com. And learn more about Good Faith Media at GoodFaithMedia.org. Brother Molly continues. Central Baptist Theological Seminary dedicates its chapel, the Ball Marshall Chapel, in April 2011. Here's Molly now, giving us a tour. I had the furniture built in honor of my husband. So the green furnishings are uh, uh, the communion table and the chairs and the, and, the, and the lectern podium. And our first candles came from the Abbey as they bear, bore the light of Christ to us. As Brother Cyprian came, represented the Abbey, when we dedicated this chapel in April 2011. It's, it's a very useful space, and so we, we arrange it in different ways for different things. Molly loves that the furnishings of solid cherry and built by a monk are movable. This feature kindles imagination and creativity. There's a Benedictine cross, a circular table around which folks can gather, large windows so that those inside can read the book of nature as well as the book of scripture. And then Molly says... Let me play the organ for you. Can she play the organ as well as tennis? Molly, wearing a red blouse, as is so often the case, takes a seat at the organ, provided by the Pillsbury Foundation. So let's do a little hondo. (laughs) That's Molly laughing. She's not even sitting at the organ now. She's relaxing in one of those high-backed solid cherry chairs, having punched a few keys on the digital organ to make it play George Friedrich Handel's water music. She says this is her shtick when giving tours. Actually, I've only, I've not really trained anybody else to do it. It's a little job security uh, that I'm the the organist. (laughs) More jokes from Molly who loves giving tours of the Immaculate Central Campus in Shawnee. Uh, I've got to show you the Trinitarian door. Uh, I was asked, what do you want on the door? And I said, I want people to be learning as they come in. Typical Molly, as are the next five minutes in which she explains the theology of the chapel door. Very, very heavy, and you see why we've got five hinges, because it's very heavy. This goes back to the... Athanasius, uh, and it's a Trinitarian shield from about the 13th century, but the theology is a lot older than that. Molly speaks in Latin, has more to say about exclusively masculine language for God, and drops sentences like this. I like to think of our seminary as a perichoretic Trinitarian uh, community in which we value and honor differentiation and yet the unity. If you want to know more about what that means... You could take one of her business cards, which actually opens up to use and define some theological terms, like perichoresis. Or you could take theology classes from Central, an innovator in theological education. Central has global partnerships in Myanmar and South Korea, locations in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Tennessee, and an impressive technological infrastructure at the main campus in Shawnee for online and distance learning. 
the 10-acre campus has also become a community hub, highlighting its hospitable space for students and others. Molly, still giving a tour of the main campus. She's on the second floor of the main building, dropping by to see faculty and staff in the Korean Studies program. She has plenty to say about the program, but she gets sidetracked. Oh, we got another puppy! Joe! Hello, you all! Oh, good girl! Or boy? What? A boy. Yeah, it is a boy. Tell me who this is. We're a dog-friendly campus. That's Choco. Oh, my goodness. Are you a Yorkie? It's a Yorkie. Oh, aren't you fun, may I? Oh, yes, you know me. I, I'm a dog person. Oh, yes. Oh, you are cute. It's August 2019, and Molly is heading back to Conception Abbey. She stops at the Kansas City airport to pick up Marie and John, two of her faculty members who work at Central's Wisconsin location. They're all headed to the Abbey for Central's faculty retreat. It will be Molly's last, for she has announced her retirement from Central in May 2020. Molly rolls into Conception Abbey with Marie and John, speaking with pride about the Abbey, much as she does about her beloved Central. Here's Brother Cyprian's take. I mean, this is, a, for all practical purposes, satellite campus of Central Baptist Theological out of Shawnee, you know? It's a, they got satellite campuses throughout the country, but this is satellite campus in many ways. <laughs> So we are the last little bit before we get to the Abbey. As we come up this hill, you're going to see a beautiful, well, just the Twin Towers now, of the Romanesque uh, Monastery, which was uh, started in the 1880s. After 25 years at Central, 15 as president, Molly T. Marshall is preparing herself for a new adventure. Here's Francisco Letardo, Central's vice president of community engagement. It, it, it's a bittersweet moment. We recognize she's, she has been a faithful worker and that uh, the time has come for her to retire and do other things and enjoy life and all of that. But uh, she will be sorely missed. Molly spends several days at the Abbey with her faculty. It's a time of planning and retreating, being alone and together, being with Baptists and with Benedictines. On Saturday before departing, the central faculty shares a communion service. Molly offers a few words to her faculty. Tears appear in the room as folks are mindful of Molly's upcoming transition. My doctor husband of blessed memory used to always say, you know, scar tissue is much stronger than unbroken skin. Our wounds our brokenness is a part of how we participate in the body of Christ. And then we are broken in order to be given. 
I think about you, I pray for each of you, but I think about you in your classrooms. You are bread for students seeking life, seeking meaning, seeking hope. Molly blesses the bread and the wine for communion. A line to receive them forms. Molly offers a blessing to each participant. And this global group of teachers, born out of Baptist tradition and joined with an ancient order, sings a final hymn with President Molly T. Marshall. It would not surprise you that I still dream about being in this library. I just spent so much time here. We asked Molly to meet us at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. She did. This is us walking on the third floor of the Boyce Library. Uh, and one of my recurring dreams is that I returned to Southern and taught in one of their kind of off-brand programs, but they've never let me in the big in the big buildings again. <laughs> Funny how it works. Yeah. Molly walks all over campus, noting the history of this and that, much as she would do at Central or Conception. She poses for a photo in front of her old office in Norton Hall. She attends part of the seminary's morning chapel, sitting in the balcony. She also drops by the president's office, which belongs still to Albert Moeller. She leaves him a note, which simply says, Al, Good to see the campus today. She signs it, Molly, along with one word, written in Greek, charis, which means grace. The banners that adorn light posts across Southern's campus say, trusted for truth. Molly, in vintage form, wants me to take her photo while standing underneath one of them. Molly T. Marshall, trusted for truth. She'll post it on Facebook later. Nothing but love radiates from her being. Molly shows me where she taught her last class. The air is heavy. We stop on the staircase and she points to where she once climbed across the roof to avoid being interrogated by trustees. She laughs, and I laugh with her. She recalls when she went up for tenure. She glows. We wind up in the McCall Pavilion, where our wall documents various parts of Southern's history. She stops. Molly is not on it. No women are. We sit down for a break on a nearby bench, in front of a wall covered in the past. We talk about the future. My deepest desire is to remain uh, useful and generative and empowering uh, yeah. to the lives of others. So, yeah. mm. I wonder if the midwives back in Moses' day <laughs> counted all the babies that they brought forth into into being. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And then, Albert Muller comes walking down the hall. He and Molly have not seen each other in a quarter century. I watch in awe at Brother Molly. They shake hands. He says he received her note and that he wanted to welcome her to campus. You have to understand that, uh, in my understanding of this institution, which can only come by someone who lived its history for so long, uh, as Molly did. It is 
it is a gift when there is ever anyone who is back on this campus. It's a living history, and it's a gift. I would I'd be disappointed for someone who is a part of this story uh, not to feel welcome and graciously received on this campus. And not only that, personally, I would feel the loss of even being able to say hello. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, the welcome. Molly and Al, Dr. Marshall and Dr. Moeller, spend several minutes talking politely about something they have in common, theological education, and how it's changing along with the church. They talk generally, as two Baptist seminary presidents, about preparing students for lives of service and ministry. Molly recounts for him what we've been doing on campus. Basically, we have strolled the campus and mm-hmm. I've talked about where I lived, yeah. where I taught, right. how my great aunt Clem was here wow. as a WMU school yeah. member. Mary uh, is actually speaking to a professional women's group um, and was not in chapel this morning or she would have been there. Uh, uh, but uh, she would have wanted to say hello. I appreciate that. Give her and my greetings. The first thing she always says when your name is mentioned is how kind you were to our children. Well, thank and you for that. That's a, that's a very sweet thing to say. Well, I and appreciate that. I intend mm-hmm. to be a kind person. Well, um, I intend to be as well. And I'm thankful for an opportunity for a yeah. kind meeting. Indeed. Yes. I hope you have a good time on the campus. Thank you. Molly leaves and gets back on a plane to fly home. She returns to Central and the President's office, where the three visitors icon by Andre Rublev hangs above her desk, each visitor with both wings and staff. Iconography has a history of interpretation, almost like a text does. And so one of the questions that has troubled uh, those trying to interpret the icon is why would some figure that could go at the speed of light, winged figure, need a staff? And one of the interpreters has said, because God chooses to make the slow way across the earth with us, which I love. Brother Molly, a beacon of wisdom, a bold voice, a Baptist legend, a brilliant theologian, a woman beyond her time, Molly Truman Marshall, who is making her home with others in God. I hear every day people asking her when I'm around, um, oh, what are you going to do? I've heard you're retiring. What are you going to do? And they say it like this is the end of the world and the end of her life. I cannot wait to see where she goes. I I, I think she's going to do great things, adventurous, wonderful things, open the eyes of a lot of people. Uh, We have so many people um, that are so bound in tradition. We've always done it that way. Uh, She's going to show them new ways. Molly Marshall is a force of nature. I show battle for the mind, still. It's amazing how that's still resonant. And of course, I always want to know what became of Molly Marshall. And it gives me such great, great pleasure to say, oh, she went on to become the first woman president of a Baptist seminary, and she is doing very well. So many women called to ministry have looked to Molly through the decades as a role model. And Molly is definitely a person who is fierce and simultaneously graceful. And I think that's one of the unique things about Molly. 
her support and advocacy for women in ministry really can't be overstated. You, you just can't. There's no way to say more than what she's actually done. Many of her legacies will be invisible to the average person. She strengthened and shored up the school in ways that no one from the outside will really see. She raised a seminary out of the cemetery. She's just caused us as Baptists to really think and ask very important questions, and she's, she does, she's not afraid of the questions. She has a personal interest in the well-being and the faithful service of the people uh, she's privileged to lead. To me, you can't explain Molly without the Holy Spirit. Her capacity to be able to mentor me and, and share with me her experiences, her insights into things. Molly has this way of making you feel like whatever it is that you're interested in or want to do is important. People who are brought in, especially prospective students, you know, our recruiters love to bring them by to meet Molly because she just makes them feel at home and she'll invite them to sit in the rocker, you know, and um, she just sits down with them. She makes it it seemed like this is the only thing she has to do right now is to sit and talk with you. Whenever we would see Molly, broad smiles came onto the faces of the monks because we knew that a genuine and a dear friend was there among us. I think she is a fantastic example for women who have been told they're too much or that they should be quiet um, which I think can be almost every single woman. She has been a torchbearer for other women to stand up and say no, and uh, this is not how it's going to be. Yeah, she has scars to, to prove all of her stories, um, but she has wisdom and she's strong. I have learned to interpret suffering as a part of the Paschal Mystery of Christ, who through death, new life, comes. And life is a series of stripping away the false self, the pompous self, uh, the proud self, to becoming hopefully more after the likeness of Christ for some of us, it takes a good while for that to occur, but I've tried to extend similar uh, generosity to others, even as I've learned uh, to value and give thanks for God's great patience with me. In all of my life, I have had far more joy than sorrow far more. Please stay tuned after the credits for an important epilogue to Brother Molly. This has been Brother Molly, Season 1 of Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. 
Stay tuned for season two, a story about big faith in Little Rock. Brother Molly is a production of Good Faith Media. It's hosted by me, Erica Whitaker. It's written by Cliff Vaughn with additional writing by me. Cliff Vaughn is the producer and editor, and Mitch Randall is the executive producer. Narration recorded by Carter Harrell. Thanks to all of our interviewees, Babs Ball, Julie Ball-Cloud, Jackie Ball-Moore, Eileen Campbell-Reed, Donna Carrier, David Goatley, Steve Haddon, Ray Higgins, June Honeycutt, Angie Jackson, John Jones, Brother Cyprian Langlois, Francisco Letardo, Linda McKinnish-Bridges, Mark Medley, Albert Moeller, Helen Moore-Montgomery, Abbott Benedict Neenan, Brother Joseph O'Neill, Marie Amrubu-Arari, John Park, Abbott Gregory Pullen, Robin Sambothi, Susan Shaw, Amber Simpson, George Townsend, and David Wilkinson. The music is from Pond 5. You heard excerpts from Australian Broadcasting Commission, UCLA Campus Events Commission, Southern Baptist Historical Library and Archives, the United Nations, the WPA Film Library, Battle for the Minds by Steve Lipscomb, and The Big Fights. Special thanks to Ursel Harrison, Sally Holt, and Carol Ann Von Cross. I'm Reverend Erica Whitaker. Thanks for listening. I have learned to interpret suffering as a part of the Paschal mystery of Christ, who through death, new life comes. And life is a series of stripping away the false self, the pompous self, uh, the proud self. Thank you for joining us for this epilogue to the documentary podcast, Brother Molly. I'm Reverend Erica Whitaker in Louisville. We trust that you've listened already to the prologue and the original six episodes. Those six episodes, including all interviews in them, were produced prior to Molly's resignation. They are important, equally important to anything you are about to hear. What follows is a conversation between Molly and the podcast writer and producer Cliff Fawn. Molly spoke with Cliff on the phone and on the record, April 2nd. That was three days after Central Seminary announced it had accepted Molly's resignation, just shy, of course, of her planned retirement in May. Central's announcement of Molly's resignation offered few specifics, saying the personnel matter required confidentiality. However, the announcement included the following statement from Molly. I offered my resignation effective March 1, 2020 to the executive committee because of an ethical lapse that betrayed my stewardship of office, which I voluntarily serviced to governance because of my desire to protect the seminary. I humbly apologize to the board and the rest of the central constituency and seek forgiveness. 
My deepest prayer is for the flourishing of the school and her new president. We reached out to the seminary for additional comment. It politely declined the invitation. Molly's statement, included in Central's March 30th announcement, has been Molly's only public statement since her resignation to this point. Here now, some of the phone conversation between Molly and Cliff. Let's just start off by talking about what happened to the extent that you can talk about it. Uh, what happened uh, was, as my public statement has said, I committed an ethical lapse. It was not uh, related to money or fraud. And I uh, reported it to our governance for the sake of the school. Are you able to say, do you want to say that it did not involve um, either something at Central? I mean, even though, you know, you're, you say it's a breach of your office. It, it didn't, it did not involve anything at Central. Various considerations prevent Molly from saying more on the record about what she calls an ethical lapse. But we think it's important to note that our finding, based on information we obtained, is that Molly's situation involves no illegal behavior at Central or elsewhere. When Molly uses the phrase stewardship of office, she is referring to high expectations of a seminary president in all matters public and private. I wonder, have I made some bad assumptions as I've questioned you across the months? try as I might to check my assumptions. I think we all continue to make assumptions based on our own thoughts and experience and beliefs and so forth. But uh, I guess this is my way of saying, you know, is there something that I just still don't get about you, but it's really important that I do? No, I don't think so. Cliff, you and I have talked about uh, a life of faith is chasing after something beautiful. Yes. I think you have uh, rightly perceived that that is what I've been doing. I have wanted to have a life worthy of the calling with which I've been called. And uh, you have understood that that has been the chief architecture of my life. And you also are well aware that a a person's story has episodes that they would not want the whole world to know. Can you talk a little bit about how you became vulnerable to the lapse of which you speak? I don't mean the end of my uh, professional uh, career to be a cautionary tale, but I ignored some basic self-care issues of, of, of rest, of strengthening bonds of friendship with uh, many who care for me. I, I just worked too hard and was inattentive in some ways to being a whole person. 
Molly had just returned from Myanmar in mid-March, going into self-quarantine at home in Kansas for two weeks in the midst of the emerging pandemic. This window coincided with Central's then-impending announcement of her resignation. Can you talk a little bit about just the, about that time, uh, kind of the psychology and the, the spiritual state? This has been the hardest patch, I think, of my life, Cliff. Uh, I, I love my school. I love those who support my school. And the thought that I had done it damage as well as borne poor witness uh, to students uh, and colleagues has been enormously heavy for me. My practice of living in the Psalter, one of the Benedictine ways, has been very helpful spiritually because nothing like the Psalms Out of the depths I cry to thee, O God, O Lord, hear my prayer. My soul wastes away. From the depths I call to you, catch the sound of my voice raised up, pleading. Penitential psalms, psalms of lament. And I have read them and wept as I've prayed the morning and the evening office. This has given some uh, consolation, but it has been a very dark period uh, for me. Were there some other things you did, uh, either in regard to religious practice or or not? Well, of course, sometimes it is just, just breathe and trust that the Holy Spirit continues to fill you and cleanse you and Uh, bring you to a place of greater peace uh, before God and with others. Uh, Once the announcement broke, there has been an enormous outpouring of kindness of persons who know I'm a flawed human as is every other and who have said it takes courage to admit you're wrong. It's a profound act of humility to make public uh, your own transgression. And so I have been heartened by by those words. Of course, it's harder for all of us these days because we don't gather as the community, uh, and so our our physical distancing uh, means it's harder uh, in these times. I'm grateful for uh, a couple of pastors who have been particularly helpful to me. I, I think in a previous conversation that you and I have had, you talked about feeling the need or want for absolution from a religious source. And I was curious if you have gotten that and what that feels and looks like for you. Thanks, Cliff. Yes, because I am a inveterate Baptist. I um, reached two uh, Baptist sources, uh, one who took initiative toward me, and I 
was able to tell her, uh, I need your prayer and I need a sacrament of reconciliation, uh, proclaiming that I am forgiven. And she was able to do that. Uh, another, another pastor in, the, in a long conversation was able to offer a similar word of understanding and forgiveness. These are very important to me. Of course, I've confessed over and over my sin to God, um, to my to my brother, to my family. But I needed one who stands in the place of Christ, who also knows suffering and weakness as Christ is described in Hebrews. And I needed persons who could uh, stand in that place to offer his word of forgiveness. I wasn't able to go to the Abbey and sit behind the screen uh, with my monk friends. They are live streaming uh, logs and vespers and mass. Um, and so I've been listening some as they have prayed the Psalter. Uh, but no, they are they are well in quarantine trying to prevent uh, people from coming into their community. And, and quite frankly, uh, Cliff, I am pretty publicly um, humiliated and I want to uh, not spread my pain any further than is necessary. Molly has been isolated and alone, body and soul quarantined and burdened. She has turned to the Book of Psalms, songs of ancient souls sung long ago. The Psalms of Lament rise up as she dives down deep into her history of humiliation. You and I have talked previously about times in your life when you felt publicly humiliated. And so, I mean, here we are talking again about it. Well, this uh, differs greatly from um, some past things when Douglas uh, confessed to a crime and then when I was dismissed uh, from Southern Seminary. Uh, neither of those was my uh, direct doing. Uh, this is a matter of, this one is a matter of conscience, which I voluntarily surfaced, uh, hoping that it could be done uh, more quietly, but um, it has not been able to be done in that way. And so I've tried to live into the reality of the personal cost of being uh, accountable. I... I give great thanks to God and to Central for the nearly 25 years that I served there and grateful for the good things of my nearly 16 years as president. I certainly pray 
that this lapse in my summative year will not imperil the school and will be uh, not thought of as uh, somehow the whole of my trajectory. We talked about in the early days of producing the podcast and then really throughout production, how important it was from our point of view to try to cover the expanse of your life, the breadth of your life and experience, realizing that no one episode says everything. I trust that there will be a sifting as this acute season passes and that I will once again uh, be useful uh, to God's people, uh, to the church, to the whole industry of theological education. But that's, but that's in the future. Uh, now I'm simply trying to read and pray. It's almost like a monk cell. I'm in the cloister at, at this point, and I'm grateful for spiritual resources, the great spiritual writers who have also known their own dark nights. And uh, I cannot say enough how helpful it has been for persons to reach toward me with with care and with gentle understanding and without prurient curiosity. And I'm grateful. Have you received less charitable responses from people directly or indirectly? Surprisingly, I have not. If they are speaking ill or if there is gossip or speculation, it's not coming to me. And that seems to me a great mercy. Well, having known you for a long time and watched your behavior uh, towards and with others and the grace and generosity you have extended to others, call it karma or something else, <laughs> uh, it seems appropriate that what you have put out might come back to you in your hour of need, so to speak. I pray so. I have been witness to the struggles and the suffering of others and have tried to be a, a safe, non-judgmental uh, place of hospitality. Hospitality is an extension of grace, of course, and so that it is being accorded to me now is is a profound mercy. I was reminded of a conversation we had about you and Douglas and when Douglas was incarcerated and um, you talked about wanting to, you and Douglas deciding that you could wrestle something good from pain and heartbreak. And I know that that's a process. Can you talk about that maybe as a process, but also as a decision or a choice in order to engender a process? It is 
a choice. It is a decision. It seems overwhelming at the beginning, of course, because the pain is so great. And I don't want to act in any way that is dismissive or cavalier. My sin is ever before me, as the psalmist says. But if I did not try to wrestle something good and graceful from this, I would not believe in the mercy of God. Here's Molly from episode three, recalling a critical moment from her relationship with Douglas. If I'm very, very blunt, it was very hard for me to see that he had put me at such vocational risk. That was the really hard thing for me to overcome. I had worked very hard and it had been um, not easy uh, to be appointed, uh, elected to the faculty. And for him to put that at risk was very hard for me to forgive because I saw it as uh, betrayal. But once again, I had to ask, do I believe the gospel? Do I believe in forgiveness? Do I believe uh, Jesus' capacity to restore? Do I have in me that possibility? And so to have some deep experience in forgiveness, I believe has made me a better theologian and a better person. Uh, Allows me to hold things a little more lightly, with a little more humility, a little less judgment. But I have uh, tried to practice what I think is the hardest Christian virtue, which is forgiveness. Is this another moment, not only in which you have had to ask yourself what you really believe, but it's also a moment for people who are not only your friends, but people who may not like you also have to ask themselves. Each of us has to ask ourselves, well, what do we really believe? Yes, the same questions uh, emerge. My abiding faith in God's mercy has not been questioned. It just takes a bit to allow it to seep into all the realities uh, of my life at this point. But grace, uh, forgiveness, the trust that God can make all things new is deeper than ever before, even as I uh, work out with fear and trembling the implications of this present moment. What do you fear right now? Uh, I fear that my whole life will be uh, 
summed up by this lapse, uh, I fear that that my uh, treasured school will suffer. Uh, I fear that speculation will make my ethical lapse a larger reality than what it actually was. However, humility requires that I simply do not try to defend myself or make excuses, but simply uh, be clear that I was not a steward of my office in its in its full sense. And for those who uh, looked at me as a leader, as a role model, I grieve deeply for the uh, hurt uh, that I have caused. All those women I have mentored over the years, those men. And so I am profoundly uh, grieved uh, for that. Fear and failure. Grief and agony. I'm reminded of an exchange with Molly while we sat on a bench at Southern Seminary last September. You haven't heard it before. My biggest fear as a young, very vocal uh, female pastor is that I might turn into the very monsters who wounded me along the way. Yes, uh, that's, that's the cycle of violence and, and how trauma gets revisited. Mm. I spoke at length this morning with Cliff about the practice of forgiveness being the hardest spiritual practice. And if we don't do it, we bind the people who have wounded us mm-hmm. to us, and we're not, we're not free. Yeah. And so it's a releasement, not only for their sake, but for our own. But we don't want to become like mm-hmm. those who have wounded us. We do not want to be persons who have so little empathy that we cannot see uh, beyond our own self-interest. Well, to quote the, the great Sufi master, Rumi, it is only through our wounds that the light can pierce us. That's right. And perhaps Henry Nouwen sure. wrote it the best, mm-hmm. how do we become wounded healers? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that takes a lifetime. It does, it does especially when your heart has been broken over and over again. You know, how does it break open instead of shatter to pieces? Molly's words that day remind me now that we cannot live within the prisons of our wounds, even the self-inflicted ones. This is a painful question for me to ask. Do you regret doing the podcast? Not at all, Cliff. Now, you and I have joked along the way when I have said uh, nobody deserves this much attention. But no, I don't regret it, and 
particularly now as I have the opportunity to have this final segment epilogue conversation with you. It gives perspective um, to the whole. I pray that my my long narrative will prove a constructive witness eventually. And so we end the epilogue with Molly's own words from the end of episode six. And life is a series of stripping away the false self, the pompous self, uh, the proud self, to becoming hopefully more after the likeness of Christ. Uh, For some of us, it takes a good while for that to occur, but I've tried to extend similar uh, generosity to others, even as I've learned uh, to value and give thanks for God's great patience with me.